first time long time 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 hey there sports fans first time long time i'm tommy fitzgerald he's richie barone richie how are you have yourself a messy little Christmas, Yoannis Espedes. We also need to trade Jay Bruce, so please do that, Sandy. Richie, Wrote that one myself. Richie, I tell you, I didn't know you had the rum in the, the eggnog already. It's not even New Year's Eve or Christmas it's a, Eve. Uh, it's a rum whiskey blend. It's that Pennsylvania Dutch. You get it down there. It's eight bucks at the liquor store. <laughs> it's it's just unbelievable, <laughs> and uh, you know it makes me it makes me very festive. I sing a bunch of songs about some of my favorite Mets and some of the moves I want uh, Sandy to make. Uh, all the all the neighborhood dogs join in around twelve or one at night, and uh, that's where we're at right now. But how are we celebrating? How are you celebrating this week leading up to Christmas? Well, I tell you, kid, I have not been this excited, as you mentioned, Pennsylvania Dutch, since Rum Springer. Was I Amish in a past life? I don't know. I do know that we had the pleasure of having former Mets general manager Steve Phillips on. And Richie, Steve, just in a remarkably informative interview. I think that folks are really going to enjoy this. I mean, Steve, I'd, I'd hire him tomorrow if I had a GM opening. This guy has really got the goods. He gave us an electric interview, and not to spoil anything, but Steve told us what he would be doing right now if he was the GM of the New York Mets, and uh, needless to say, it was interesting, and if you're a Mets fan, pretty exciting. So here we are, it's our interview with former Mets GM and all-around good guy, Steve Phillips. All right, well, we're back now with uh, the former GM of the New York Mets and a current insider for TSN. Steve Phillips. Steve, welcome to the show. How's everything? I'm doing great, guys. Good to be with you. Very good. And uh, how's everything at TSN? How long have you been there? Well, I've been doing stuff with TSN for, oh, I want to say, um, you know, off and on for probably about 10 years. Uh, and, you know, I do uh, uh, the MLB Network radio show, the leadoff spot from 7 to 10 a.m., uh, Monday through Friday on Sirius 209 XM 89 as well with Todd Hollinsworth, former uh, Dodger Rookie of the Year back in the day, and and uh, do a little bit of that, do some work with 120 Sports as well, which is kind of an online sports center, digital sports center. There's an app for it as well. So, you know, keeping my foot in it and a lot of different media outlets, uh, you know, continuing to stay around the game and keeping up the pace with everything. So uh, staying busy for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And, uh, you know, just going back to – Reading a little bit about your background, one thing I didn't know is that you were uh, an incredible football player in, in high school, actually had a chance to play some college football at Northwestern. I uh, just wanted to kind of see with your journey how you ended up uh, you know, choosing to play baseball, obviously an excellent baseball player as well, but sort of what that decision process was like. Yeah, I was in high school and I uh, was getting recruited for football and, and you know, I've been contacted by a lot of the major schools and you know, visited Boston College, uh, Holy Cross, Yale, Cornell, Northwestern, and Michigan. Uh, and tell you how old I am, uh, I went went to a uh, went to a Michigan Indiana basketball game, and Isaiah Thomas was playing for Indiana at the time. Oh, uh, wow. So it tells you how far back I go. But 
you know, Denny Green, longtime NFL head coach for the Vikings and Cardinals, uh, was the head coach at Northwestern when I got recruited there. I ended up signing a letter of intent to play football at Northwestern. But, uh, you know, later in my senior year of high school, I got drafted by the Mets uh, and ended up giving up that scholarship uh, to sign a uh, minor league deal with the Mets. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that, that you know, my parents made education important and every offseason went back and got a semester of school in. So it took me eight years, you know, one semester at a time to get my college degree, but ended up graduating from University of Michigan. Uh, and don't, don't regret making the decision that I did. I was uh, my freshman year, what would have been my freshman year at Northwestern, they started 11 freshmen uh, between the offense and defense. So I would have gotten a chance to play, but, you know, I was in the midst of the Northwestern long losing streak. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think for saving life and limb, it was probably a good decision choosing baseball over football. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to agree for sure. Uh, and you know, when when you started playing baseball and you got drafted by the Mets, did you always have it in the back of your mind that you wanted to be part of uh, a front office, or you know, did you figure? Did you not really think that far in advance? I, I didn't know it when uh, when I got into it. I think that once I started, uh, you know, I was in the minor leagues and I was there with the Goodens and Strawberries and Dykstras of the world. That certainly Mets fans remember that era of player. And, the Kevin Elsters and, and, you know, Sean Abner's and, and, uh, you know, that group of players from 81 through 87, I was in the Mets minor league system. So John Gibbons, who's now the manager for the blue Jays was a teammate. Billy Bean, uh, was a teammate in the minor leagues as well. So, you know, it was really kind of a, what turned out to be a heyday for the Mets farm system with Joe McElvain doing the scouting. And, and I think when I was in the minor leagues, you know, there were a lot of things I watched and I saw and I thought, boy, if I were ever in charge, I would do it a little bit differently uh, because, I, you know, I just thought that there could be different levels of communication, different sort of accountability and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that, that there was a point when I was going through it that I thought to myself, you know, maybe someday if I could get into this, I, it would be interesting. But I finished up college, uh, finished up playing, and, and I ended up getting traded over to the Tigers organization which being from detroit was pretty cool for me uh and was only over there for a double a with the tigers and, and actually roomed with john smoltz uh just before oh, wow. uh a couple weeks before he got traded for doyle alexander to the detroit tigers he was a roommate for two weeks and then he got dealt uh in the deal to go there and alexander obviously was a great pitcher for detroit won nine in a row down the stretch uh but smoltz obviously turned into a nemesis of mine uh, later in uh, in my career, and certainly later in his career. Absolutely, Steve. And you you resided over some of the most successful teams in Mets history. You know, bringing in uh, you know with Leiter and, and Piazza, Robin Ventura, Draft and David Wright. In terms of, of team building, sort of was there a overall macro strategy uh, that you had as as to build a franchise, or was it a, a flexibility thing that kind of went year to year? You know, it, it was, uh, I, I came in when, when baseball started going to some young general managers. And, um, you know, I think that we saw a transition probably when I took over with the Mets, where you saw the game starting to go to, to the direction that it's headed now with, you know, the more academic sort of executives. Now, I, you know, I was kind of a hybrid having been a minor league player uh, and understanding it from the player side, but you know, baseball started moving away from, from, you know, the longtime major league player as an executive to, to more of the, you know, the, the academic and, and people who looked at numbers a little bit. And I kind of looked at it like I was a hybrid uh, as an executive. But certainly I thought the numbers 
were part of the story, probably more so than, than, than some others at the time. But I also believe that the scouts had value that, you know, watching a player could tell you a lot that it wasn't just about the numbers, but it was also about the personality and the makeup and such. Cause you know, I learned that as a player that, that not always the guys who were the most talented were the ones who excelled and that you needed some combination of the two. But, you know, I went to where I thought pitching was critical. Uh, obviously you needed to build an offense, but pitching was critical. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, well, I can't spend Yankee money. So what I tried to do was I may not have had the most impact at the beginning of the game with pitching or necessarily at the end of the game, but I thought one through 12, I wanted to build a staff to get throw the most quality innings over the course of a season. And I think we did that for, for a number of years. Yeah, back in the day, I got to ask, I mean, were scouts really looking at guys and, and, and judging them based on, like, their draw lines and, like, their posture and stuff? Like, was that, you know, because you see, if you watch, like, Moneyball, you see you got these guys that are that are basing their analysis on some things that look, you know, a little a little out there. Well, I think that, that you know, uh, body types mattered to a lot of scouts. You know, there was a period of time when I was playing in the minor leagues and played against a number of Atlanta Braves teams, and every one of their teams had somebody that looked like Dale Murphy. I mean, they all were, you know, they wanted guys built the same way and, and such. And, and I know even for the Mets, there was a thought of, you know, trying to get the long, loose, lanky pitcher, and they tended to shy away from the different sort of looking guy. Uh, and, you know, there were some people who said, well, short right-handed pitchers, well, they can't have success, so let's, not, let's stay away from them. Uh, certain guys that are built a certain way with, you know, broad shoulders, they don't tend to pitch well. And, and I think also when I took over, they were, they had a, a psychological exam that they were Im- implementing in player development and scouting. And, uh, I, I, I didn't buy it. Uh, there was a player who we had seen who tested as one of the worst tests ever, an amateur player. Uh, and what happened was in 1989, when there was the earthquake in California, uh, in San Francisco for the world series, uh, this young man helped our front office with the local scout, get out of the hotel. And, and they had a relationship with the kid. They liked the kid because he helped them in a tough time. When he took the psychological exam that next year, uh, in, in, in anticipation of the draft, he scored horribly. It was one of the worst scores they had ever seen. And nobody believed it. And then they said, well, he's dyslexic, so let's have him retake the test, have the scout read it to him, and see if the results are different. And then it came back as one of the best tests ever. And wow. so we ended up drafting the player. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't until about three years later, uh, after he handed me the gun in spring training, uh, that I told him, uh, you've got an hour. I'm, I, by law, have to turn your gun into the police, uh, but I'm going to give you an hour to pack your stuff and get out of town, but uh, you're done. You're released. You're out of here. And, uh, and so, you know, I, one of the things that I, and this is when I was the farm director, I said, you know what, if I'm ever in charge, this test is out because I don't buy it. Uh, I don't believe it. I think there's something we can do better at getting to understand players than using some tests. So, um, you know, it's one that, uh, that psychological mental aspect of player development scouting was critical to me when I came into the front office. That makes a ton of sense, Steve. And I, you know, I think one of the biggest moves, obviously when you were with the Mets was acquiring Mike Piazza. And I guess sort of the the question is the timeline when he gets moved from the Dodgers to the Marlins, 
you know, about a, I guess a week's time. What is that that time period like? Were you were you zeroing in on him before the move to the Marlins? Sort of what was the thought process among the Metropolitans and yourself there? Well, we had been looking for uh, a superstar. It had been something that that ownership Nelson Doubleday, you know, said to me. He said, listen, we have a good little team, but we need a superstar. We, you know, fans here love the stars. They like the marquee players. They like the big time names. And so we looked, you know, we, we dabbled on Gary Sheffield, whether he would make sense or not. We tried to get Kevin Brown from the Marlins uh, when they were disassembling. We had picked up Al Leiter. You know, we were starting to put together a good competitive little team. Uh, but it was, it was when, uh, uh, you know, Piazza got traded. He didn't, he, they couldn't reach a deal. Uh, in his free agent years, walk year with the Dodgers. And so they ended up trading into the Marlins when the Marlins were disassembling that team that won a World Series. Uh, and so, you know, they, they were taking it apart. And so we called Dave Dombrowski after that. And at the time, we had Todd Hundley rehabbing some Tommy John surgery on his elbow. And Todd was one of the best offensive catchers in the game at the time. He hit 40 home runs, big power bat, switch hitter, could do a lot of things. But he was coming back. And even with that, you know, Piazza was better. Uh, and so we had checked in with Dombrowski and initially said, look, you know what, we're, we've got Hundley coming back. We don't want to give up prospects to bring in another catcher because then we're going to have Hundley with nowhere to go. And then, you know, after some internal debate within the organization, we regrouped, uh, visited with ownership uh, and got the go ahead to pull off the deal. And it was because we had had so many discussions with Dombrowski on Kevin Brown when we made a deal for Al later, when we had gotten Dennis Cook we knew what players Dombrowski liked in our organization uh, and we were able to put together a package that we knew would you know, get the deal done quickly to bring Piazza in. And, and where it looked like we weren't in, within probably about a 24-hour period, things changed. Uh, a lot of people take credit for it. Uh, you know, Mike and the Mad Dog in New York uh, take credit that they were the reasons why we changed our mind. Um, you know, Nelson Doubleday believes he was the one that did it. Fred Wolpon believes he was the one that did it. And all I can tell you is that, that there was a perfect storm of events. It wasn't because of talk radio. We heard the noise, obviously. We heard the reactions to it. But it was, it was going through the internal process and doing our due diligence uh, and getting ownership, understanding about where we were as an organization, and that it was time to take that risk, which every team has to take at the point where you decide to go from being a good little team to a playoff contending team, and that Piazza was the guy to take it with. That's so fascinating, Steve, because it is such a relationship business, having the previous experience dealing with Dombrowski to, to allow you to have the knowledge about the guys he's looking for. That's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, the other thing with Dombrowski, uh, with Dave, and I made a lot of deals with Dave over the years, um, he also liked to uh, make the decisions in the, in the trade. He wanted to pick the players rather than, then, you know, he didn't want to offer me and then me making picks. So what I did is he also liked lists. So what I did is I offered him list A, B, and C. And on each list, I put three players uh, that were in my mind of different tiers of ability. And because of our previous conversations, I knew who he liked. And so I put one of those guys on list A, one of those guys on list B, and one of those guys on list C. But around them, I included other players that I didn't really want to include in the deal, but I knew if I only let him pick one off of that list that he would avoid taking some of the other players. So, uh, and, it, and it happened quickly because he took 
the guy off of list A that I thought he would, the guy off list B, list B that I thought he would, and the guy off of list C that I thought he would as well. Uh, but it was better doing it that way, letting him pick the guy he wanted instead of just making the offer with these three guys because he tended to want to have control over the deal. And that was just a matter of understanding the person on the other side of the negotiation and what they preferred in the negotiating process. If you can say, was the, was the guy off list A uh, Preston Wilson? And did you yes. think at the time, okay, so at the time, did you feel like you were losing a, a real big prospect or were you kind of uh, throwing a little party inside of your office because you were oh, like, Oh, no, you know, no. We thought Preston was going to be a good player. And he turned out to be a good player. I mean, Preston had a yeah. nice career. Uh, but, no, no, we knew that Preston was going to be a good player. Uh, and look, it was difficult parting with him with Mookie as a coach in the organization, obviously, Sure. but, uh, the way I looked at it was that even if any of the three players that we gave up, you know, reached full potential, uh, that they still wouldn't be Mike, Mike Piazza. Uh, and they wouldn't probably reach that full, full potential for three or four or five years. And therefore, the deal was worth making because we were getting the impact of the superstar. We were getting the time value of the talent, meaning we're getting it today rather than waiting for it for three or four years down the road. And when you're, when you're close to winning, you know, the timing doesn't always work out. And there comes a moment where the value is worth giving up some part of the future just to be able to get to that point of being competitive today. And it was the right time and place to make that deal for the Mets when we were able to pull it off. And then, you know, we were able to, to, to flip Todd Hundley that next offseason. Initially, I had a deal done with the Baltimore Orioles for Armando Benitez and a big third baseman named Ryan Miner, who was the guy that replaced Cal Ripken for a bit, Oklahoma State basketball guy. And, and, uh, right. and we, we had that up. deal. But then Frank, Frank Wren, the uh, general manager at the time, called me back and said, listen, my owner is gun-shy on health. He wants us to get a physical for Todd Hundley. And I said, listen, I'll give you every bit of medical information. I'll give you access to our trainers, our coaches, our doctors. You watch them throw. You can get access to all of our information. But I'm not flying them into Baltimore for your doctors to evaluate it because I know that, that we all knew in the industry that their physical was different than anybody else's and that their doctor didn't want to get burned. And what I didn't want was for Hundley to fail that physical with them and then not be able to trade them somewhere else. So. They pulled back on the deal, and then I traded Hundley to the Dodgers for Charles Johnson and Roger Cedeno, and then took Charles Johnson and traded him to the Orioles to get Armando Benitez. So, you know, we turned Todd Hundley after getting Piazza and really having nowhere to go but one team, the Dodgers, and really turned it into Armando Benitez and Roger Cedeno, both of whom were very productive players for us for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean that was a that was those were tremendous deals. I I remember I remember being very surprised when Piazza came to New York. Obviously, very excited. But uh, did you have to talk to Todd Hundley at all, or did you leave that to you know the 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 coaching staff? No, no, I definitely had that conversation, and and uh, you know it's not an easy one because Todd grew up in the organization. He had been working hard to try to come back from Tommy John surgery, and we told him ideally we'd love for him to be able to play some outfield. Uh, and try to do it. The problem was he tackled the fly balls. Uh, he had some difficulty <laughs> with the uh, with uh, it wasn't a great fit for him in the outfield. And and look, as much as you know, most everybody would make the evaluation that Hunley is really good. Piazza was great. 
it's hard being the really good guy and feeling like, you know, well, wait a minute, why am I not good enough? Especially since I grew up here. So, you know, those are always the really hard conversations and decisions to make. And, and, uh, you know, to this day, I mean, I feel badly for Todd because I think he would have loved to have just continued his career as a Met. Uh, he loved the fans. The fans loved him. But obviously, Piazza took us to another level, and he took that relationship with the fans to another level as well. Yeah, and Steve, obviously, you know as well as, as anybody having the ability to, to build a really strong organization. What teams have really impressed you over the last couple, two, three years in really building up their organization that you say, wow, that guy's doing a really nice job? Well, the Cubs. I mean, Phil Epstein's a Hall of Fame executive already. I mean, I, you know, what he did in taking the Cubs apart and then rebuilding them uh, to break two curses in his career, both in Boston and in Chicago, uh, to build the team the way they did from the ground up with young athletic position players, adding the pitching as they, they did all along the way. Uh, they, they deserve a ton of credit. Uh, Theo really does. He's, he, he's a phenomenal executive, does an amazing job. Uh, you know, Dave Dombrowski for me is exceptional. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that think, well, the game's passing him by a little bit. He's an older guy. But then he pulls off the Chris Sale deal, right, that, uh, yeah. that everybody in baseball was hoping they'd get Chris Sale. Uh, and Dombrowski got him. And, and right now you'd have to say that the Red Sox are, are probably the team to beat in the American League right now. So, uh, you know, I think those guys, you know, stand out. There's no question about that. I think John Daniels in Texas, you know, continues to do a very good job. Uh, and, you know, they're willing to be patient to, to kind of wait it out a little bit. But they make a lot of smart moves. They've got a very good farm system from which they can develop and trade. Uh, they've done a really nice job. Cleveland, it's taken a while to get back on track, but, you know, from Mark Shapiro to Chris Antonetti now to uh, uh, to the rest of the front office, they're doing a heck of a job there. So, you know, I mean, I think that, that – and Brian Cashman's always one of my favorites, and I think that he's doing something that is extremely difficult to do right now, which is trying to rebuild and win at the same time. It's a really tough thing to do. You need to have the financial wherewithal to do it. Uh, I thought he did brilliantly well at the trade deadline last year, yeah, uh, trading away Chapman, now re-signing Chapman, the Beltron deal, and, and others. Uh, so I think Cashman always does a great job and, and uh, you know, is, is somebody that uh, if he ever wanted to leave the Yankees, I think every organization of baseball would consider making changes to bring him in. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, uh, you know, if, if you're looking at the Mets team right now, uh, you know, they have – a surplus of outfielders, and they're looking for some some relief pitching help. Are you hearing any names recently, or, or you know what would you be doing if you were the Mets now? Uh, you know you don't have a ton of money to work with, but but what's the move here to get to get everybody excited uh, and ready for this upcoming season? Yeah, uh, I mean here here's what I would do uh, is that I would trade Granderson or Bruce, and not matter what I got. It wouldn't matter to me what I got back in return. I would put a package of Steven Matz and Conforto together to go get Charlie Blackman to play center field for the Colorado Rockies. And then I would uh, sign Edwin and Canacion to play first base. Um, I, I look at the Mets roster right now and love the pitching depth. Um, you know, and I think they're looking at using Gaselman and Lugo in the bullpen and maybe Wheeler in the bullpen, depending upon how it goes. I would trade Matz because I'm not convinced he's going to stay healthy for his career. And I think Blackman would be a difference maker. I, I think the outfield right now is a bit cumbersome and, and clunky for the match with a bunch of corner outfielders. And it feels like they keep trying to pound a square peg into a round hole in center field, and they don't have the right fit there. Um, 
you know, they lost 75% of their infield last year. I personally think they need a, a, a third base answer. Would love, I would have loved for them to go after Justin Turner to bring him back. I would have loved for them to make a run at a guy like Evan Longoria. If you're not going to go after Blackman, go get Longoria to play third base. Um, because David Wright's career is effectively over as an everyday player. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's sad. Uh, but it is, it is just the reality that you cannot count on him any longer as an everyday player. He can only be a backup at third and first and hope that he stays healthy in that kind of a role. Uh, so you know, I, would, I would be aggressive on the Mets. I think they're in this window right now for the next three years with these pitchers to win. Uh, and I would do everything I can to put that roster together to go do it. So, um, you know, I, I would go about a little bit differently than they are. And yet, you know what? Their clunky roster, and even with losing 75% of the infield last year and 60% of the rotation, they were a playoff team. And Sandy Olison does a great job. And Terry Collins, for all of the criticism, I don't get it. I think he is exceptional in managing this team, dealing with adversity. His guys play hard. They're accountable. Uh, so I think the Mets are in a good place. I think they're, you know, their roster is a little bit you know, awkward uh, because of you know, the glut of corner outfielders and no center fielders, but you know, it seems to be working for them. If you, if you were to pick one move that, you know, I mean, your move sounded phenomenal. I was getting chills. I started tearing up. I, I would love to have Edwin Encarnacion <laughs> and Blackman on the team. But if you had to look realistically, do you think this this uh, squad as it is is going to pull the trigger on anything like that, or is it more like we're no. gonna? It's no. gonna be no. You're gonna look at you know one year deals on relievers right now. So right. whether that's gonna be a, a Boone Logan or Travis Wood uh, or somebody like that, I you know I, I think that they're gonna try to look for a, a reliever. Uh, you know, those guys might get multi-year deals that may take the Mets out of the mix there. Uh, but, you know, maybe they'll get in on Alex Colomay with Tampa Bay to really impact. I would love to see that move for them. Although, you know, we're hearing that Rosario or, or uh, Conforto would have to be the package in return, which might be a little steep from the Mets' uh, perspective on what they want to give up. But, you know, I think with the p- pending suspension for Familia, uh, I think they need to, to, to do something at the end of the game to protect themselves, and they need to protect the starting pitchers. The key to the Mets next year is keeping five starting pitchers consistently in a rotation with giving them some time off, working a sixth guy in or a seventh guy in, protecting arms, but keeping everybody healthy. You can miss a start, you can miss two starts, but you can't have guys miss, missing a month at a time because that's what will end up costing the Mets if they, if they don't stay healthy in that rotation. Yeah, I got to say, Steve, one thing that's fascinating is having the experience as, as a general manager and now being in media and, and being on both sides. And I guess when, when you're working sources and when you're talking to folks about certain moves, do you kind of have a BS meter when you know that someone's just uh, pulling your leg a little bit? And, and how do you cipher your way through that? Well, I think, yeah, I think that, that you know, one of the keys in any negotiation and even, even within your own organization is to understand who you're talking to understand the way they evaluate the way that they talk, the language that they use, you know, as a, as a general manager, one of the keys is that you have to evaluate the evaluators. You have to know which guys are conservative, which guys love every player, which guys, you know, hardly like anybody. And when that guy says, you know, I really like this guy, you got to really listen to that and, and take note. So 
you know, as, as much as anything, it is about listening, understanding what people need, and what they want. Uh, and yeah, you know, listen, uh, you know, you know, when I uh, take it, Edwin Encarnacion as an example, uh, you know, he's, he's out in the free agent market. He wants a five year, $125 million deal, but it's, that's nice that you want that, but he's overplayed his hand. It's not there for him. Uh, and in doing so, he's put himself in a position that right now he walked away from four years, 80 million because he said he wanted five at 125 and now he doesn't have a deal at all. He's got nobody on the table and that's an agent who overplayed his hand. And, and, you know, the blue Jays did the right thing. They said, no, we're not chasing what you want. Wait for us. And unfortunately, you know, the players now left where he's not going to get a four year deal. He's probably not going to get $20 million a year. And he's probably looking at probably a three times 15 deal for 45 million when he could have had 80 uh, and that comes down to understanding the market and the people that you're talking to. Yeah, Steve, that excellent stuff. Obviously, really enjoyed having you on the show. Uh, great baseball mind, incredibly jo- job within the media. Just tell uh, the folks out there where we can find you uh, both in the morning and with TSN. You bet. I'm on MLB Network Radio, Sirius Channel 209, XM 89. 7 to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday called the leadoff spot with Todd Hollinsworth. Also on TSN, which is kind of like the Canadian uh, ESPN up there and, and the sports channel, uh, sports network there. Also 120 Sports. You can download the app. Uh, it is uh, connected to MLB.com, NHL.com. Uh, sports Illustrated is a partner as well. And uh, it's kind of an online sports center, also an app. And this 120 stands for 60 seconds plus 60 seconds. So two minutes on every sports topic. And obviously we break down a lot of baseball on there as well. So staying busy with all that. Thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, thanks, Stephen. One more, one more thing. Actually, two quick things before you go. This just popped into my head here. First, uh, do you ever get mad that people assume you traded for Victor Zambrano? Because I would get very upset. <laughs> well, it's not that they think that I traded for Victor Zambrano. It's that I traded Scott Kazmir. That is, I, I, I do get blamed with that one a lot. And, and I, you know, typically uh, I said yes. And I'm also, re- I, I did not do that, but I am responsible for Desert Storm, uh, the, the war. I mean, I, I've gotten blamed for a lot of things. But that, that uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was actually, it's the only time I was grateful I was fired was I was fired almost a whole year before they made that trade. So that was not my fault. Oh yeah, and and secondly, uh, um, I'm gonna say here, I forgot. I got so excited about this. Uh, oh, what was <laughs> who was one who was one player that you nearly traded over the course of your career as a GM that you're very thankful now that you didn't you know you didn't move. It would have been like a disaster. Yeah. You know, typically I traded guys. I didn't look back on that. I will say that the one thing that I don't know that Mets fans really know is that, that uh, I am responsible for Roger Clemens not being a New York Met. That in 1981, I was drafted in the fifth round by the Mets, and Clemens was drafted in the twelfth round by the New York Mets out of San Jacinto Junior College. And that, that Joe McElvain, the scouting director, flew down uh, three times to Texas uh, to make a decision because they had offered Clemens $25,000 to sign. He wanted 35000 Joe got rained out all three times. He went down to see Clemens pitch. They ended up not giving him the 10000 And at the same time, I was holding out for more money. I got the Clemens 10000 
Uh, so the Mets signed me instead of Roger Clemens, and for that, I'm very sorry to Mets fans. No, Unbelievable. We'll, Steve, we'll take you over, Roger, every, any day of the week. Believe me. Yeah, <laughs> us, okay. Mets fans, <laughs> us Mets fans, uh, we know how to hold a grudge with old, uh, old Raj. So, uh, but, hey, thank, thank you so much, Steve. Okay, guys, you got it. Wow, Richie, I, I, I have almost a half hour of full content. Steve was remarkable. There are so many stories that I did not know. I really appreciated the stuff about Dave Dombrowski, talking about the list, his respect for Dombrowski, and really all about the Mets. I, I, I learned more in 25 minutes talking to Steve Phillips than I learned in the entire 11th grade. Oh, yeah, I mean, easily. It was, uh, it was an education there was a lot there, you know, Dave Dombrowski, the lists, uh, Todd Humley, Mike Piazza, he did it all. Uh, you know, you're welcome, Met fans. We gave you a little Christmas present early there. And, uh, you know, take that, try to try to digest all of the information that Steve just dished out there. And I hope, you know, sincerely from first time, long time, we hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and uh, a happy happy new year. We'll talk to you next week anyway. We'll give some of our New Year's resolutions. And uh, for now, I'll finish. Uh, I'll finish with another song. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Sandy Alderson might make a trade. He sees you when you're sleeping. He asks for your best reliever. But he won't get it back from you unless you give him a med rosario. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pat. I'm telling you why. Sandy Claus is coming to town. Rudolph was not a five-tool player. We'll see you next week. Yeah, hey, fellas. This is Chris from New Hyde Park. First time, long time. Hi, this is Bob from Greenpoint. First time, long time here. Hey guys, this is Audie Bevilacqua from Hapog. First time, long time. <laughs>